I'm Robin Miller-Brecker. And I'm Karen Lenzer. Welcome to Seeking Center, the podcast. Join us each week as we have the conversations and weed through the spiritual and holistic clutter for you. We'll boil it down to what you need to know now. We're all about total wellness, which to us means building a healthy life on a physical, mental, and spiritual level. We'll talk to the trailblazers who'll introduce you to the practices, products, and experiences that may be just what you need to hear about to transform your life. If you're listening to this, it's no accident. Think of this as your seeking center and your place to seek your center. And for even more mega inspo, sign up for Seeking Center, the newsletter at seekingcenter.app. Have you ever felt like you're drinking all the green juice, trying all the latest diets and doing all of the workouts that are supposed to make you feel better than ever? And somehow you feel even more burnt out or does stress derail your self-care routine? Well, today we're talking with Jess Cording. She's a true innovator in mind, body, and spirit wellness and has dedicated most of her life to sharing and teaching others about how to create a practical and personalized healthy lifestyle. As a registered dietitian, health coach, and author, Jess has followed her passion for incorporating healthy living and wellness into real life routines. Jess used to let her stress run the show in her own life. Fast forward to the Jess that is with us today, who has applied what she calls mind-body-spirit hacks for managing stress and wellness. She's developed tools and resources that provide science-based education and actionable tips for managing anxiety, reducing disease risk, and feeling better now. Her book, The Little Book of Game Changers, 50 Healthy Habits for Managing Stress and Anxiety, is a treasure trove of simple, no-nonsense wellness goodness that offer nuggets of wellness wisdom to help us chill the heck out and feel better. She's also the author of the upcoming The Farewell Tour, a caregiver's guide to stress management, sane nutrition, and better sleep, which is coming out October 11th, 2022. Healthy living doesn't have to be complicated. And Jess is out there spreading the message. We have so much to discuss. Let's get talking. Hi, Jess. So good to see you. Oh, good to see you. I'm just going to add on to the fact that wasn't an intro that I met when I was working at Discovery. And she was a treasure in her own right just to be there and answer any question I had on nutrition. I had issues with my hair at the time. And she was so helpful and just really guiding me. And I think that that's what we're all looking for, a guide as we're trying to navigate all things health, nutrition-wise. It's not always at the top of our list, but I just... Oh my gosh. And yeah, it was so nice to connect. I had such a great experience there. I cannot say enough good things of the opportunity to just be working in that space and connecting with patients and clients in that realm. It was just a really special experience for me. Well, I felt like it was a real added value as an employee to have you there. Let's start from the beginning. Tell us a little bit how nutrition and healthy living played a role in your life. Yeah. So I grew up in New Jersey, you know, in the eighties and nineties, and it was a very weird time in the wellness world, right? It was like fat-free everything and snack wells, this, and I grew up around a lot of really sick people. My family, you name a body part or organ system and someone's got it covered. But I remember, especially as I was around eight, nine, 10 years old, there was a lot of cancer in the family. And so I grew up hearing the adults talking about it all. And I also was watching my relatives go through cancer, heart disease, diabetes. But at the same time, also there was a lot of body image stuff. My family, that side of the family tree, long history of eating disorders. And a lot of that stuff rubbed off on me at a young age. And I just was terrified. I was afraid that everything was going to give me cancer and body image, not a good environment to be in as a young girl. So that stuff definitely trickled down to me. And I developed all these food phobias. I was just 
terrified to eat. I had so much anxiety. I was having stomach pain all the time. And so I ended up falling off the growth curve, which for, I don't know if they still talk in that terms. I haven't done pediatrics in a long time, but meaning I just didn't gain enough weight. I didn't grow tall enough one year. And my pediatrician was like, Hey, like what's going on here? And so I actually had the opportunity to work with a therapist and a dietitian to help me get back on track. And it was so helpful. I watched a lot of my peers go through the angst of trying to figure out food and diet and nutrition and body image stuff in high school. And I've been lucky enough to work with a professional. So I was able to know my body, know what I needed. And it served me so well. And it was on my mind to do that potentially as a career path, but I hated chemistry class. I didn't even finish it in high school. I loved writing. So the first time around, I followed a scholarship to Emerson College and I studied writing literature and publishing. And I just had the best time. I was very happy to be there. I graduated with a writing degree at the beginning of a recession. And I landed in New York City and I was just trying to figure out what I was going to do. I was working in music PR and just kind of writing on the side, but I was not fulfilled at all. I had a great experience. I learned a lot in that realm, but it wasn't my calling. It wasn't my purpose. But I remember thinking to myself, okay, well, what kind of environment do I want to show up in every day? And I visualized a calm, softly lit office environment. Maybe there was a fountain or a soft music plan. My mother is a hypnotherapist and psychotherapist. So I kind of grew up around that stuff and probably was thinking of office and places that she would work. So I went on Craigslist because that's what you did in 2008. And I found myself a job as an office manager for an acupuncturist. And she did a lot of women's health. And I took that job managing her office, but I was also ghostwriting all of her blog and marketing materials. This was pre-social media. I had all these Chinese medicine textbooks and I was like, this is amazing. This mind body stuff. I want to learn more, but I knew Chinese medicine wasn't my path as much as I love it. I think it's incredible. I kind of was like, ah, maybe I should pick up the nutrition stuff again. So I researched some programs and I decided to go back to school to become a dietitian. And my boyfriend at the time was furious. He was like, how dare you not ask my permission? And I was like, well, I'm doing it anyway. A 23 year old me just knew I needed to follow that path. And I, it was hard. My dietetic internship with near Presbyterian hospital after I finished my master's, it was like baptism by fire. It was during Hurricane Sandy by the time I was there. So it was just like crazy experience, but it was amazing. I loved it. It was so intense and it really was a good background. So somehow that was 10 years ago. <laughs> it's been a ride. Wow. That's a great story. And I just love how you utilize something that happened to you, a difficulty that you had to face in your own life led to your passion and your career. You know, this stuff gets overwhelming and complicated. And especially today, we're inundated with information. It's even worse than it was when I was a little girl dealing with my grandma and my aunts talking about their bodies around the kitchen table. I'm like looking at cat scans. We have social media now. And if I can add some lightness and help demystify for people, that's a good day for me. Most people don't even realize in terms of how much your diet can actually change your life and transform your life. I think people are learning that now more and more. And that's why we're talking about it today. Growing up, I didn't understand the impact of what I was putting in my body. And so much of when we were all growing up, I think was about how quickly could I get it made rather than taking the time to actually make my food or really pay attention to what I'm putting in my body. And so I'm bringing all that up because how cool that at 23, those puzzle pieces came into play. And so how did you then, once you graduated, how did you make the jump to both tying it with anxiety and stress, but also this idea of the small changes? 
Was that mm-hmm. something that you learned about while you were in school or was that something you figured out later in terms of how to really help incorporate better nutrition in someone's life? That's a wonderful question. I feel like school for me, and I think this is changing. I think we're seeing programs that are a little more holistic and comprehensive, but I did my education at NYU and, and Hunter and I did my clinical training at New York Presbyterian. So it was the cl- most clinical of the clinical, which I wanted. I loved that. I'm equally right brain and left brain, so it suited me well, but but I will say grad school for me was survival mode. It was really like the shark tank. It was insane. Inwardly, I can be competitive, but not, I mean, I had someone sabotage one of my lab experiments once. I'm not even kidding. It was unbelievable. I just was floored. I was like, this is a thing we do as adults. But I think the stress piece came, I did not have a nine to five job until I was 35 years old. Because the dietetics world is very interesting, and especially in the New York area. It's very saturated and the job market was very competitive. And as a new grad, I just needed to pay my bills. So I took the first job I could get. I was working part-time in a long-term care facility. It didn't cover all the bills. I had to supplement. So I started doing corporate wellness on the side. I was doing private counseling. I was doing media work, writing. And so I kind of got on the entrepreneur hustle. I was living that lifestyle in my late 20s into early 30s. I guess right around when I turned 30, my body stopped being able to drink eight cups of coffee a day. I went to the doctor. I was having heart palpitations. I was also going through a really tough time in my personal life. I was like that age where everyone was settling down and I was so single. And the guy I thought I was going to marry moved across the country. And it was a whole trying to be a human, but also run a business. It was a very loaded time. And by the way, I hope it wasn't the guy that was mad that you didn't ask for his permission. No. To go. <laughs> oh, no. That, well, interesting. Okay. That guy, as soon as I got my dietetic internship assignment, which was like one of the best in the country, the better I did, the worse we did. And we just got a nice clean break. You know, my husband is still as friends with a bunch of his exes. I'm not friends with any of my exes. <laughs> Very few exceptions to that. But I found myself in my doctor's office with heart palpitations. I was like, you know, I'm stressed at work. I'm not really sleeping. Blah, blah, blah. She's like, well, how much coffee are you drinking? And I was like, mm, okay. So that was kind of the beginning of really confronting how I was not managing my own stress. I wasn't working long-term care anymore, but I was working at the hospital for special surgery, doing floor coverage as a per diem. But I was also the dietitian for the ALS clinic, which was such an incredible opportunity because it really taught me a lot about the value of food as a connector and really beyond just the functionality of eating. It really highlighted for me the emotional, social, spiritual aspect of eating. And also put quality of life into perspective, really made that more of a priority. And that that I think was really for me in my own life, seeing the effect of stress and over-reliance on coffee and just that the mind, body, spirit related back to things that I grew up learning about as a teenager. So that was sort of what got me first interested in this. And at that time, I was also doing a lot of continuing education, going to holistic conferences and learning about the gut-brain connection. That was a big piece for me. Once I started to understand that the brain in our gut, the enteric nervous system, you know, that it talks to the brain in our head, that really set up a whole new approach for me and just really thinking about that communication that happens in the body and all the things that impact it. Around that time, I decided to pursue additional training as a integrative nutrition health coach to complement my RD training. That was a really great part of the journey too, because I learned about how to counsel people on things beyond just medical nutrition therapy. I gained more skills and confidence in working with people to talk about lifestyle, behavior change, 
really looking at how to guide somebody as opposed to just dropping education on them and walking out the door, which was a lot of my clinical training. The stress piece, I think when I was working at Discovery, that was when I really started to implement a lot more of that because I had the opportunity to work with the same people over time and really get a sense of each individual and what they needed. And also just see that effect of workplace stress, for example. Every workplace has their different stressors, but really looking at small changes. It was just sort of an approach I just started trying because I found that a lot of people were overwhelmed. And I think I get this from my mother, who is a Capricorn and always just wants everybody to be peaceful. My sister is a Libra. My dad was a Libra. Like my, my family doesn't do conflict. I'm a Sagittarius, so I'm on fire all the time. So I'm always trying to learn how to bring calm to my surroundings just to keep everything okay. But it was really just wanting to help people feel better in small ways and to help decrease the overwhelm. I know in your book, you have so many good ideas, but is there, let's say one small change that you think applies to most people that they could be making in in order to decrease the stress in their lives? So when we're talking about stress, I think it's really starts with acknowledging that the goal is not to necessarily reduce stress. I'm always annoyed when I hear practitioners say, reduce your stress. It's almost as maddening as when someone says, get seven hours of uninterrupted sleep. That's so true. You're right. That's so true. But I think with stress, it's really about, so being aware of, okay, what specifically causes you stress? You can get super granular about this. It can be something big, something little, but I think identify the stressor and then identify what you can and can't control about it. And I understand with the stuff that you can't control, I understand how maddening that can be and just how frustrating and just to hold space for that, acknowledge it. But then with the things that you can do something about, come up with a plan, even if it's like one teeny tiny little action step, but if a Addressing the stressor in that way is still going to bring you some peace of mind or add a little bit more ease to your day. That's well worth it. So it's not about reducing the stress but it's making sure you have the coping skills that will help you feel resilient in the face of that stress. That's a great answer. Is there something specific in terms of the eating side of stress? A lot of people over when they're stressed out and then there's others that go the opposite way and don't eat at all. What do you suggest for people when they're in that kind of stressful situation? What kind of foods or things should they turn to that can help alleviate that, that are good for them? So I pretty much always bring it back to blood sugar. That is where everything attaches underneath. If I could go back in time and give my younger self some advice, it would be to make sure I was eating enough healthy fat and protein to keep my blood sugar stable. Because again, I'm an 80s baby. I grew up being told for so many years that fat was bad. And I remember times where I would have these mood swings, these energy crashes. And I'm wondering, why do I feel like this? And once I got old enough to realize, oh, right. If you just put some peanut butter or in my case, sunflower butter on that banana, or if you eat low fat or full fat yogurt instead of fat free or have eggs instead of oatmeal for breakfast, you're going to feel so much better. But I think especially when you're stressed out, our nervous system, when it's on the fritz, that's increasing levels of stress hormones like cortisol, for example. And cortisol is very tight into our blood sugar. So as we're going on this stress roller coaster, our blood glucose is also going on this roller coaster. So having an appropriate balance of protein, fat, and carbohydrate can really help stabilize. Because when we eat any kind of carbohydrate, whether it's from a grain or a fruit or a starchy vegetable or from sugar, as, as we digest that food, the starches break down to smaller molecules and then enter our bloodstream and our glucose goes up. That's what's supposed to happen. That's why we need some carbohydrate in their diet. It gives our body some fuel. But what can happen is if we either we're eating that carbohydrate on an empty stomach, or we don't have enough 
protein and or fat or fiber to slow down that digestive process, our blood sugar is going to go up quickly, then it's going to come down quickly, and we're going to be on this roller coaster all day. And with that, because blood sugar regulates our energy, our mood, our focus, and it's tied into our stress response, you know, that's going to make our quality of life for that day a lot more challenging. But protein, fat, fiber, they all buffer the breakdown of those carbohydrates. So we experience a much more slow and steady increase and decrease in blood sugar, which helps us feel more stable. And an example I get all the time from patients is, well, I eat oatmeal for breakfast. That's healthy, right? I have oatmeal and banana. And yes, oatmeal is a healthy food. Bananas are a healthy food, but they both are primarily carbohydrate. So if you want to make that meal a little more balanced and help it set you up for a better day, how about you put some chia or some ground flax in the oatmeal? And then what if you maybe add a spoonful of your favorite nut or seed butter or add some protein powder in there and then maybe do half a banana or do some berries because berries have way more fiber. Lots of options, but a more balanced meal that's not necessarily that different from what you're already doing. Just little tweaks that can help set you up for more, more balanced day, we'll say. I wish I had you in my kitchen because literally what you're saying to me, I have no concept of. I was not brought up to think about the balance of food or even to think about how they have different nutritional value and how they work in my body. It's cool. As kids, they tell you like about, okay, so here's some birth control, but just don't do it anyway. And here's <laughs> kind of what happens. But we don't get nutrition education. We don't no, get we taught. really don't. I, I don't know if they teach kids about tracking their menstrual cycle but food can help with that too. If I could go back in time and know that potassium eases menstrual cramps, teenagehood would have been so much so different. We don't learn this and unless you seek it out, unless you have tried so many other ways and you aren't just actually turning to a pill or something to try to ease symptoms basically of what's going on with you. And you don't really take a look at what you're actually putting in your body throughout the day. I think you can be so lost and just having the knowledge. And as you just said, making those small tweaks, it really can change your whole demeanor. I think so many people, they're always saying they're so tired. Yes. And listen, and sometimes that is warranted for so many reasons that need to to get checked out, but there's a lot of times I believe that we're tired because we're not, as you just said, it has to do with your blood sugar and you're crashing and you don't know how to come out of it. So then you drink coffee and then you crash again. And so I just think it's so important. It's a cycle. I find it often if someone is dealing with fatigue, I mean, sometimes yes, it's related to something specific. Like if you've been on chemotherapy or you're doing radiation, that's its own special kind of fatigue. But if you're working a desk job, you're not moving around much, if you're drinking a lot of coffee, but maybe not much water, your diet quality is not supporting stable blood sugar, of course, you're going to feel tired. And maybe if you're jacked up on coffee, and you can't sleep at night, that's going to just perpetuate the cycle. And I've seen that so many times. And I'll be real, like when I was drinking my eight cups of coffee a day, I've been there. I get that. What yeah. I think too, that even some of what you're talking about in terms of chia seeds or other types of, whether it's seeds or fruits and nuts, those were not maybe as readily available when we were all growing up. Yeah. But I think in the world that we're living in now, you can find them a lot more readily in your grocery store. So now, once you hear these things, you can actually go pick them up. Yeah, which is so great. More tools and more availability. I think the trick is making it simple and easy. And I think a lot of people who are on the run too might think it's too expensive to eat nutritionally. I recorded a podcast episode earlier today with Dr. Will Cole, and we were talking about that exact topic, affordable foods that support your wellness goals. You go in the supermarket, like, yes, you can get frozen produce. And oftentimes the antioxidant activity is even better in some frozen produce than like stuff that's been on the shelf or canned beans. 
eggs. Most grocery stores, and again, there are exceptions, but if you look, you can find some organic poultry. I'll recommend sometimes if it's on sale, buy an extra, stick it in your freezer. Wild fish, frozen fish is a great resource. I mean, I always have, I know it's not popular. I love sardines. I have to have sardines in my pantry at all times. But simple foods, oats we were talking about, um, does not have to be complicated. And I think it's getting familiar with the accessible, healthy, convenient foods. Because we live in a culture where so much about the wellness world right now is it's about what's going to look good on Instagram or like what's going to be pretty. And I've seen a lot of people get into the mindset of thinking that wellness has to look like lots of supplements lots of expensive pills and powders and different tinctures and things. And it does not have to be that complicated. It can be very basic. Are you eating enough vegetables? Are you hydrating? Is your blood sugar stable? That basic stuff. Speaking of that and talking about hydration and water, what would you say an average adult, how much water should they be drinking a day? Yeah, that's a great question. And we don't have any official recommendations for how much water specifically somebody needs. What I will say, just based on general nutrition recommendations that eight eight ounce classes a day is a pretty good ballpark for most healthy adults. But just know that different times in their life cycle, we might need a little bit more pregnancy, lactation, for example, especially during lactation, or if someone's very active, if you're sweating a lot, or sometimes if you have a medical condition or you're on a medication that impacts your hydration status or certain health conditions. This is less common, but certain health conditions like chronic kidney disease might actually require someone to consume a little less fluid. That's less common, but I always say if you're not sure, just touch base with your doctor, trusted healthcare provider, and they can give you some guidance on that. But generally speaking, a good ballpark, I'll say a jumping off point was that eight, eight ounces classes a day. So 64 ounces. Yeah. I think that's helpful because I'm always surprised to know that most people don't realize how much water they need to be drinking. And therefore they end up suffering from dehydration and not knowing it, especially in these warmer months. From my own experience, when I was, I was in my twenties, I didn't know. I'm hoping people are more educated now, but I completely suffered from dehydration. I had to go to the hospital. And from that day forward, I always leave the house with water because Mm -hmm. it was so frightening. (laughs) My point in saying all that is no one told me. No one ever said. They never taught that in school. Have you seen just the health trends have shifted over time a lot to your point earlier when you said everything was quick, easy, on the run. Yes. And with COVID, a lot changed too, people being home. That's where I was going, actually. How have you seen just in your career, those trends really shift and, and how have they shifted as a result of COVID especially? Well, what's been really interesting to me, so say years ago, vegetarian and vegan and raw was still a big thing. And maybe it is in some circles. I mean, today we have plant-based quote unquote, but whereas 15 years ago, it was beans and lentils and nuts. And today it's these food products that are plant-based, but meant to seem like meat products. It's evolved a lot. And I think it's interesting. I'm curious to see where it goes, but it's getting further away from food in its natural state. And I, I, I'm not sure how I feel about that, but we had, for example, I remember again, same time frame, 15 years ago, where was, there was more awareness around celiac disease and gluten-free. And today we have so many more, and that's not 
not a trend so much as it is we started learning more about the prevalence of celiac and gluten sensitivity. And we've seen some companies try to ties on that, but we've seen a lot more acceptance of gluten intolerance and having acceptable products for people who need to limit gluten, more awareness around food allergies and better options for people who have those allergies. But trends, first we have like the vegetarian stuff, meatless Mondays, which is good stuff. But then we would also see like Whole30, Paleo, people veering more towards those styles of eating, which you know, every quote unquote fad has its pros and cons. But the stuff about Whole30 and Paleo is that it got people cooking more and thinking more about processed foods and looking at like, what am I putting in my body? And then keto, that's a whole other. What I will say about keto, I appreciate that it made fat socially acceptable again because I'm Italian and Greek. So it's all olive oil all the time. And so I'm happy that people are on board with that. And we're learning so much about the health benefits of olive oil in so many ways beyond just heart health. But I think that the low carb thing though, Atkins was around in the early 2000s. Then we kind of got away from it for a while. Now we're in a media cycle again, where it's low carb, everything. And I'm curious to see where it goes next. It always goes in a cycle. But with COVID, I think we started seeing more about immune system function, which is kind of cool because I think that opened up more opportunities to talk about gastrointestinal health as a big part of overall well-being. So that's a positive. But then we also saw people being at home more after being on the go all the time. And it's a different life. And what I've been finding with my patients, because I've worked outside of the home throughout most of this. So I've had a different experience, but my patients who are working from home, they're just as busy in some cases more because they're doing childcare, they're educating, they're also working remotely. And it's not the same. It's a very certain kind of fatigue, that screen fatigue. And there's been studies looking at this and people having to adjust to changes in physical activity. We've seen a growth of the at-home fitness industry, which is really cool. I'm very for that. I love the idea of making fitness very approachable for anyone, anywhere they are. But I think we also had a lot of people who their gyms closed. And then so they weren't able to come up with a new routine. They were so overwhelmed. So they're dealing with the consequences of being active, what that does to the mind and the body and trying to get back on track. So I think where we're at now, when COVID started, I saw a lot of immune system stuff. People were obsessed about, we're going to take all the quercetin and all the zinc. And I still have to sometimes tell someone, hey, look, maybe 100 milligrams of zinc is not a good idea, just as like a standing day-to-day <laughs> supplementation. Maybe we should talk about that. But I think it's gone on and people kind of settled into, okay, this is not going to go away in two weeks. It's been a lot more about dealing with weight management, but balancing a lot at home, the boundaries blurred between work life and home life. So people still want convenient, but they're cooking more. And I see a lot of people being like, but I'm home. So theoretically I should be able to do it more, but they're just as stretched. I see also too, a lot of people struggling with snacking, compulsive snacking, because they're at home, they're near their kitchen. That's been challenging for people. So I think healthy snacking behaviors has become a thing, but on a deeper level. And this one area I would love to explore more that I've been interested in for personal reasons, I wish we had more research on is nutrition to really help support people dealing with trauma. I think we're in a time right now where the whole world has been cracked open and everyone's trying to figure out how do you put the pieces back together? Because I think sometimes when we go through an experience, whether that's on an individual level or a global level, it's like the rock and the hard place and the rock splits open. Yes, you could look at it like, okay, the rock split open. This is terrible. But then sometimes you look inside and 
maybe there's some beautiful crystals or something glimmering in there that's worth looking at. And we kind of see certain facets of ourselves, our lives, our societies that we didn't see before. And one thing I'm seeing a lot is people being very in touch with traumas, whether that's new trauma related to what we've been going through or people dealing with old trauma that's been reactivated and how that affects the mind and the body. Because on the surface, it might be, are you stress eating because you're stress eating because you're stressed or is something deeper going on? I think having the right tools to support mental well-being, counseling or mental health services or outlets that are healthy, like exercise, meditation, mindfulness, what have you. But I think nutrition has the potential to be supportive as someone's going through that process too. And I think where we're at at this point in the time frame, however long it might be, I think we're getting to a place where people are starting to acknowledge that they've been through some tough stuff and are wanting to start to process it and figure out how to take care of themselves and move forward. And I don't necessarily mean go back to normal because I don't think that's an option, but really just to figure out how to feel well and thrive within this new framework, I guess we might say. Wow, that was really that was really helpful because I think a lot of people relate to that and don't even think they, they compartmentalize mind, body, spirit so often. And I don't even think that people think about food and trauma in the same sentence. And I think there's a lot to learn. I think as we start to learn more about the gastrointestinal portion, I think that will shed some light. I think again, the blood sugar, but also I'm curious to see if we learn more about different nutrients that might play a role as well, because we're learning about brain function and different nutrients that are really supportive or things that are not supportive. And again, with the stress response, if someone's going through a traumatic experience or processing trauma, that there are physiological changes happening in the body and being able to support somebody through that. That's an area that I really hope as a society, we continue to lean into and explore more to really help people because I feel like everyone's got some kind of trauma they're dealing with. Well, and I think your point, I was actually just having this conversation yesterday with somebody about everyone collectively We've all been through a trauma. I mean, having mm-hmm. our world change practically overnight and it will not go back to in quotes normal. It just won't. And we've all been through this collectively together. And it's almost like PTSD mm-hmm. and trying to, in many ways, trying to really come to terms with that because we all just had to figure out how to survive during it and now get used to a new normal. So is there anything that you would say does impact our actual brain activity, which is tied to our gut. Is there one thing every day that you think most people should have as part of their diet? Yeah, I think it's important. So some things that nurture the gut, we know we need adequate fiber and the official recommendation is 25 to 35 grams per day for healthy adults. Again, some people may need more or less than that. Like if someone has IBS, for example, they might need to, if they're going through a flare up, they might need to be a little more careful about the amount of fiber or the sources or certain gastrointestinal conditions, maybe where someone has to modify. But lots of plants on the plate, that's a big one. Having lots of vegetables, diversity of vegetables, fruit has its place, blooms, so beans, peas, lentils, nuts and seeds. These are all good sources of fiber. And I think it's good too. There's so many different gut bacteria. We hear about probiotics and I always recommend eating fermented foods, whether it's yogurt, kefir, sauerkraut, kimchi, miso, that kind of stuff. But the thing is, these foods only have a few types 
types of bacteria. And I think we need a variety of them. And for a lot of people, it's more accessible to consider a probiotic supplement and to make sure there's some prebiotics also present. So the probiotics are the good bacteria that fight the good fight in the gastrointestinal system, help fight off invading pathogens. They play a role in digestive regularity. We're learning more and more all the time about the ways in which having a thriving gut microbiome full of a wide variety of probiotic bacteria helps with the gut, which therefore helps with the immune system, which helps with brain function, which helps with emotional, mental well-being. We're still learning more and more about that. Prebiotics, so to speak, they're indigestible fibers that act as fuel, let's say, for the probiotics. So one thing that I think is good, we're seeing more probiotic supplements now with prebiotics added to them, but you can also get them in lots of foods like oats, apples, unripe bananas, Jerusalem artichokes, wheat germ, onions, garlic, leeks, a number of foods have them. So there's a lot of opportunities to incorporate them into our diet, but you get the best benefit when you're consuming them together. So if you're making overnight oats, maybe use kefir in there or some Greek yogurt, or if you're making, I don't know, a dish with different veggies and caramelized onions and some leeks and garlic and some sauerkraut with it, just incorporating a variety of these foods. But I'm I'm definitely not against supplements for probiotics. I think they can be really helpful because they can help you cover more bases more consistently. But beyond fiber and probiotics, I think hydration is really important because if someone's still in constipation, because you can be eating all the fiber in the world, but if you're not hydrated enough, it's not going to go anywhere. So hydration keeps things moving through the GI system. But beyond food, what else are we feeding ourselves with? What kind of media are we consuming? What kinds of conversations and energies are we around? Because that stuff all also impacts the gut. It impacts the brain. It impacts so many aspects of our well-being. So I think building some awareness around what else you're consuming can be very, very helpful in this. One of the things my mom, my mom was very much into nutrition. She had six children with all varying levels of health. She taught us at a young age when we didn't know what to have, like we'd go to the stand there in front of the refrigerator, 10 minutes trying to figure out what to have. She trained us to use our intuition. Is that something that you relate to it all. She would say to us that she believed that the body knows what it wants or needs and that we just need to take that moment and really listen to that. Do you think that there's illness in that? If somebody here is listening, because I'm listening to so many things that you're talking about and I think on the most simplistic of levels, it could be a tool that you could utilize and really just tap in for a minute and before you go and you reach for something that's here or quick, really taking a minute and thinking about, okay. I love that so much. I love that your mom trained you guys to think of it that way because talk about ahead of your time. Wow. Yes. This is a big part of why I don't believe in conquering cravings. I hate that. I think cravings are a way of the body trying to tell us that it needs something, whether it's an emotional something, a physical something. But to your point, people, we're distracted. We're busy. Everyone's tired. Everyone's busy. When, when we have so much distraction or things getting in the way of that gut brain communication, it can be really hard to know what to nourish yourself with, especially if you don't have a master's degree in nutrition, you know, I'm at a place in my life where because of my training, I still am thinking about meals and snacks. I'm thinking of, okay, I need a protein, I need fat, I need fiber. That's kind of where my brain goes. But I understand that that's not typical. Being in touch with foods that make you feel well is really powerful. And when you realize you need a snack or you want a snack, that's a really good opportunity to ask yourself, what do I need? And how do I want to feel? And really being in touch with foods that make you feel that way. Or if someone is standing in front of the fridge and they're not actually hungry, they realize they just need to feel something else being okay. So 
if I'm not actually hungry, what's going to help me feel the way I want to feel? And then doing that thing, provided as long as it's not like heroin or something. But (laughs) (laughs) But I think to that point, just even one step back from that, I feel there are so many people who don't realize they may be addicted to, let's say, sugar or carbohydrates, not the good carbohydrate. How do you assess that for yourself so that you can then know when you are standing in front of that fridge, not to reach And sometimes, by the way, every once in a while, those things may be okay, but it's the knowing of your body feeling like it needs it but then never feeling fulfilled from that. So it's very interesting. In my field, there are people that say that food addiction is not real. And I just don't buy that. I feel like anything can be addictive, whether that's physiologically, behaviorally. I don't really care. If someone is telling me they feel addicted to sugar, I'm going to listen to them. And I'm going to help them understand a little bit where that's coming from. Or if I'm out of my scope with that, I'm going to refer them to a mental health care provider who can help them dig deeper into that. But I think that with sugar, Specifically, we're conditioned from an early age to use sugar as a consolation prize or a reward. Yes, yes. I'm sure this is still a practice. The kids go to the doctor, get a lollipop. My dentist in the city, he would give out candies in the waiting room. I was like, wait a minute, you're a dentist. But the banks have lollipops. Everywhere has lollipops. And we're also fed this idea of, oh, well, when you are sad, you should eat ice cream or cake. Or this is what we see in media and shows, like people placating themselves with sugar and alcohol. But if we want to go to a physiological place. So our body utilizes carbohydrate to help make serotonin, a mood regulating brain chemical. And there's different things that can influence serotonin levels and cause them to go down. So for example, if we're in a depressed state and our serotonin levels take a dip for one reason or another, whether that's related to just environmental stuff, brain chemistry stuff that's maybe underlying changes in sunlight. This comes up a lot with seasonal affective disorder, but a lot of people experience cravings for carbohydrate, especially simple carbs when their serotonin levels take a hit. And then they blame themselves. They're like, oh, I'm craving potatoes, but I said I wasn't going to eat potatoes. And they make it a story about willpower. When really it's that And I think bring some awareness to the fact that maybe if you're craving carbs, maybe your body is needing carbs. So maybe sticking with the serotonin example, your body wants help making more serotonin. So it manifests that in a craving for potatoes or bread or pasta because it recognizes that that's an easy source of easily digestible carbohydrates. Or if you've been working out a lot, no, and you are not replenishing your carbohydrates enough, or maybe you're choosing carbohydrate sources that aren't slow burning enough. Maybe you're choosing some carbs white flours, refined flours, or pretzels instead. Maybe you'd be better served having oatmeal or berries and pairing it with protein. And you end up craving more carbs later because you just didn't get what you really needed to help support recovery after your workout. And these are just a few examples. But they're really helpful, honestly. Yeah. It just reminds me that your body is such a machine in a way, and it really needs care and little feeding in a way that most of us just don't know about. And you're right. It's so easy to blame yourself for picking the wrong thing to eat. And it's really about understanding and listening to your body as opposed to condemning yourself for making a bad decision. And I think there's just so many tips in here. And I want to just talk about the book for a second, because it's really so great because what you do is make it real. You make it simple. And these are just easy, quick little tips and tricks, not just in the food and nutritional area, but really the holistic mind, body, spirit space. In fact, you even categorize your book in these different categories of mind, body, spirit, which I love. So I know we've covered a lot on on food, Jess, but could you maybe give us a tip or trick, one of your favorites? 
in, in each of those sections just to give people listening a sense of some of these other great ideas that are in the book. Yeah, well, so one of my favorites from the little book of Game Changers is the chapter about putting your own name on your calendar. This is something that I do. This is something I tell my patients to do all the time because I don't know, especially as women, it's so easy to give our time to others and it's so easy to take care of everyone else's needs, whether that's in a personal setting, professional setting. If there is something that you want to have happen in that time or you just know you need some downtime, not only will helping putting putting the time aside on your calendar help ensure that that time gets used for your needs, whether it's a doctor's appointment or meal prep or meditation, whatever you need, it not only helps it get done, but it also in a subtle way reinforces that your health and well-being matters just as much as all the other priorities on your to-do list, especially if you have an electronic calendar where people can book time with you. Blocking out that time for yourself is extra important because again, if someone sees an open spot, we live in a culture now where we are on demand all the time, unless we put the parameters in place for it to be otherwise. I love the do not disturb function on the phone. It's the best. And I think with the spirit section, and I did way more into this in the farewell tour, but energy management, wow, that is something I wish I could go back in time and talk to Meg herself about. And I still have to keep myself in check with this. I feel like for a lot of us, especially, I remember learning the word for an empath and I was maybe 30, 31. I was like, oh, that's what my problem is. But I was saying, it's not a problem. It's just being an energy sponge is just a thing that some people have to work with. And just really understanding if you are sensitive to energy around you, using different rituals and tools that are just, even if it's just saying no and setting boundaries. There's also a chapter in the farewell tour about how to ask for help. That's a big one. I think that that's something we don't do enough of. Um, I'm always reminding, sometimes my patients, one of their assignments will be to ask for help. But I think setting boundaries with your time and your energy, practicing saying no until you feel confident. And I know this is really hard for people pleasers and recovering people pleasers, but being aware of what is sucking your energy and really similarly to having a stress management plan, I think coming up with a plan to manage those energy sucks. <laughs> and then the little book of game changers, there's also a chapter that resonated with a lot of people when it first came out. And especially during the pandemic, I got a lot of people reaching out to me about this. There's a chapter about making a loneliness game plan. And that was something that I really started doing when I was 20 years old. I was living in Boston. It was the summer. I found a job. I found a Apartment, got an internship, took some classes. I was one of those overachiever scholarship kids. I was just like, I'm not going home. I'm just going to be independent. But of course, I'm there in the city. I'm figuring out how to be a functional human. And it was lonely. And I remember sitting down one day and literally making a list of things to do when I felt lonely. And I don't remember all of them anymore, but I remember one of them was going to the Boston Public Library. But it was not just about going to the library and getting a book. It was about the walk to get there and just the experience. And I walked a lot. That's always been one of my ways of coping. But I think with a loneliness game plan, just really thinking of a few things that will shift your energy and help you just feel better. And I think the only rule with that is that it should be something that genuinely helps you feel better, not something you think you should do. If you're like, oh, I hear that other people clean when they're stressed or upset. So I should do that too, even though I hate cleaning. No, if cleaning a drawer out will serve you, great, do it. But if you're going to be better served by going to get a manicure or watching a show that makes you laugh, do that. Everybody at any any age really should have that because we all get lonely at some point. Or we shove it down and then we eat all the wrong food. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> 
Y'all would buy stuff we don't need online. That was my That's thing. That's true. Oh, God. I yeah. probably kept Amazon in business during the pandemic. We all did. I also wanted to ask you, it seems like your mom was really spiritual in her own way too. My mom got me really interested in goddesses when I was like, I don't know, 12, 13. We went to Lilith Fair when it was around, like all that stuff. So I grew up Catholic. My mom's family is Catholic. My dad was Greek Orthodox until like the last six months of his life when he decided to become Catholic. I don't know. That was interesting. But for my confirmation, when I was 14 and I wasn't super invested in the Catholic church. My family, we were very spiritual. I grew up believing in the interconnectedness of all things and really about just treating people well and just there being something beyond what we can see. But what I learned at CCD class at Sunday school, that didn't resonate with me in the Catholic church iteration of it. And I'm not knocking that. I think spirituality is very individual and religion is very individual. But my gift as a confirmation was a deck of tarot cards, a deck of goddess tarot cards. And it resonated with me so much. I still read cards to this day. Almost every day I draw a card. And I don't do a lot of readings for others anymore. I don't really use oracle cards or tarot specifically as a way of like predicting the future. I use it more as a way to just get some extra insight. I think that the supposed randomness of the card, you're asking it a question because there's something that you want to understand. Even if it's something simple, like what should I keep in mind today? I think that your reaction to the card tells you everything that you need to know. And I think sometimes it gets you to think about things in a different way. I'm also really into dream analysis. <laughs> like I remember getting really into that as a teenager and that still is a tool that I find so useful because when you notice that something's coming up and how you're reacting to it, I think it gives you a lot of insight onto how might be a good way for you to respond to that thing. Or if you've been feeling stuck about something, what's a good way to start brainstorming a little bit and start to dig a little deeper and bring some awareness to that particular issue for yourself. Those are such great ideas for people who may feel daunted. A lot of times on our podcast, we talk about trying, whether you're meditating or taking a quiet moment, asking a question and then write from that, but that may seem overwhelming for someone and using the tool of whether it's a tarot card, Oracle card, or dream, or we've talked about this too. Sometimes you have to have the intention to remember your dream, but if you do do that, and then you can start to see those patterns, that's again, another, I love your point. And how does it make you feel? Because that will tell you a lot about what's going on at that moment or at that time frame for you. Yeah. I mean, we talk so much about spirit on this podcast, but I think what you reminded me is that the body is the vessel that our spirit it lives in right while it's here. And it is just so important to listen to it and take care of it and really take some time to understand what it needs to be in its best, most healthy form. And I think so many of us are just so not either conditioned to think that way. We're so busy, as you were saying before, living our lives and thinking about a million other things that we don't take the time just to learn simple things that we can do to feel better. So I love this book for that reason, because it kind of ties it all together. It does remind you that you are mind, body, and spirit. Well, and let's also talk about your upcoming book inspired by some events that happened in your own life. Can you talk a little bit about the farewell tour that's coming out in October? Yeah, well, it's funny. If I go way back, I think it really started when I was working in the ALS clinic. And it was a really unique experience because that's a disease that 
we don't have a cure for. We don't know really what causes it. We have a little bit of information on that, but it's something that the prognosis is not good. And it, it, it it's funny. Throughout my career, I've found myself over and over again working in populations where people are up against something really tough like that. And I was like, what is it about me that this stuff keeps finding me? And I always felt comfortable working in those settings. And I recognize that it, it takes a certain, certain stamina, we'll say, to do that. And I had to learn how to take care of myself to go and do that kind of work. And I still have to be mindful of that. But um, I think I remember what was interesting about meeting someone for the first time and knowing that you're going to get to know them as they die a slow, painful death. It really shifted the focus of what was important. Whereas I was doing inpatient counseling about post-op healing. I was like, eat protein and blah, blah, blah. But this was very different. And it was frustrating for me as a dietitian. Yes, I could help. I worked very closely in that world with a speech language pathologist. And we would talk, she would help with speech and swallowing issues. And then I would help with helping someone meet their nutritional needs when their functional ability to eat was compromised. And eventually, you know, I would write the tube feed orders when someone could not eat by mouth anymore. And I just always remember seeing the wear and tear on the families because as your patients went through this difficult experience, their families and friends were right there with them. And I just remember always wishing I could offer more support when my profession really didn't, that wasn't part of it. And that was really tough for me because I would sometimes go home at night and think about the families too. And when I was 31, my father was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, which by the time they found it, like many GI cancers, it had spread to everywhere and surgery was not an option. And so chemotherapy was what the plan was. And it was so advanced that it was the kind of thing that my sister had just gotten engaged. And I remember she had a plan to be getting married in about a year from then. And we asked his doctors, so should she move up the wedding? And they said, yeah, as soon as possible. And everything changed. I had been working seven days days a week at seven different jobs, basically. I just was so focused on my career and I realized I just had to be there. And the title comes from how my father referred to his last months. He ended up living for 15 months with pancreatic cancer. It was a freaking miracle. We really got to make the best of that time. I had had all this experience as a clinician. And I just assumed that meant that I would know what to do and that I would be okay if my own loved one ever dealt with a serious illness. But I learned very quickly that I could not have been more wrong. I had a lot to learn and I couldn't find any resources. So my dad worked in the music industry, as I shared. He worked in promotions. He was Columbia Records for most of his career. He did a while when MTV was brand new. He worked there, program director type work, and then he went back to Columbia. And then he had a management company for a while before he retired. But his artists, I remember seeing how exhausted they would be on tour because you'd go to the show and you'd go backstage and you'd see they love what they did. It was this experience, lots of wonderful memories. But man, it was a job. And I would see the crew and see the road manager would be exhausted and the people who were doing the lights and the sound. Everybody was just wiped out, but there for it. And I remember thinking it was very similar when we were taking care of my dad. We were on this farewell tour and the farewell tour itself was something he came up with. I remember one day I was at my parents' house and he was on the phone with someone. He hangs up and he just chuckles. He's like, man, once someone finds out you're dying, everyone wants a piece of you. It's like the farewell tour. So we started calling it that. And for him, it was really about like living his life on his terms. He did not want my dietitian advice. I talk about that in the book, what that was like to just let go and just be there instead of trying to control the situation. That book, it's a lot about mind, body, spirit. It's broken down to sections related to stress management, nutrition, sleep, movement. But there's also sections on end of life. There's also a section on relationships. They also bring in experts from different areas. Well, outside 
have my expertise. Like I have Dr. Will Cole, Dr. Uma Naidu, Dr. Vincent Pedre. I have a dating expert, Lily Womble. I have an end of life doula. We have a lot of different voices in there. We have movement specialists. But then I also interviewed some musicians that my dad worked with about life on the road and what they learned in terms of physical well-being while on tour, emotional well-being. I also talk about having a bag of essentials. This is a theme that comes up a bit in the book. We talk about the toolbox, but a toolbox is really heavy. And if you're on the road, you're on that caregiver journey where things are changing all the time, you're wiped out, but you have to keep going for the person that you're caring for. Maybe you're better served with a backpack that has just some of the essentials you need for that leg of the journey. So I also interviewed them about what bag of essentials do they travel with? So I stuck primarily with artists that my father worked with himself. So we have Elvis Costello, John Mellencamp, Willie Nile, some other younger artists like Billy Keen, who I have a really funny, weird connection with my husband with that I also tell that story. A really awesome guy, DJ Lee, who is a musician, producer, is like one of my big brothers. We have Sarah Lee Guthrie, who I met through Billy Keen. So we also have music industry veteran Paul Rappaport talking about what it's like to be on the road with a band. He talks about being on the tour with like the Stones and Leonard Cohen and all different artists, the craziness and just trying to hang on and figure it out and how to be a human while juggling all these different things. So the Farewell Tour is really the kind of book I could have used when I was up in the middle of the night after chemo day, trying to settle down and figure out how to respond to that online dating message, that kind of stuff. So it's both, it's part how-to, it's part personal story, but like everything I write, it's really meant to be approachable, engaging, not preachy. I can't stand that. I have no patience for that. So I hope people will find it useful and in a weird way, enjoyable. Your dad would love the book. Yeah. So when I sat down to write the acknowledgements, actually, and this was such a daunting task, I remember sitting down to write them and I was like, oh my gosh, how am I going to do this? I have all these people I want to thank and what I want to say. And uh, I had this dream. My dad once in a while would come to me in a dream. And that night I had a dream that I was on vacation doing yoga. And all of a sudden my father is standing there right in front of me and he's just smiling and he's wearing this ridiculous shirt. You know, the shirt says, do what you love, love what you live. And (laughs) and it had like Hawaiian flowers. I was like, that's my shirt. But he was just smiling. He was so happy. And he was like, I had to wait to come until you were calm and you could hear me and you could see me. And we just kind of stood there smiling at each other. And I woke up with just this feeling of calm and I knew everything I had to write then for the acknowledgements. And it just flowed really easily. And the whole experience of writing the book was a lot like that. A lot of it came to me in dreams. I was getting guidance. I believe in stuff like that. Like you were saying, Karen, in a sense, the body is a vessel. And I think sometimes our whole being is a vessel in a sense. Well, you clearly... You had a visitation with your dad. Yeah, they always feel, you never know when it's coming. You don't. And then you know, because you can, even when you're talking about it now, you can actually remember the feeling of what you felt when you saw him and everything that kind of transpired. That's that's so special. It is. And I think I've forgotten until you started telling that story, how much you have put yourself in that position of being a healer in the lives of people who are dying, who are facing, who have faced big diagnoses and all that stress and anxiety that they're feeling. And you're such a calm person. Your whole demeanor is just so calming, just being in your presence. I'm sure that that helps them as well. But 
it's been a challenging road to walk those shoes, not only in your professional life, but in your personal life as well. And how wonderful that you've had so much rich experience in terms of understanding the body experience, but then how it kind of brought you out of that to really personally face it in your life with your dad. It just is almost a full circle experience. I'm sure. Do you feel like it helps you even more now with the patients that you have? While I was writing this book, I actually had a cancer scare. I had to have two breast biopsies and then a biopsy on my chest right in the middle of writing this book. I didn't talk about it publicly at the time because I care for a lot of breast cancer patients and I felt like they didn't need that from me. They needed to know that I was focused on them. But from my experience with my dad and my experience and other iterations of my career where I was caring for people with very difficult illnesses, different diseases have different prevalence. Like breast cancer has a really high survival rate. It's a really different thing than say pancreatic cancer. But a lot of the emotions are the same, especially early on when there's so much you don't know. And even when you've been in survivorship for decades and you still get nervous every time you go for a mammogram, that's very real. But also people's partners are on that journey with them and children. To your point, I have to be very thoughtful about having little rituals in place to manage my own energy. That experience, it was six months maybe to me working with a lot of breast cancer patients. And all of a sudden there's there shit on my mammogram. <laughs> like, okay, we got to think. With, I grew up with my mom talking about Louise Hay and mind-body medicine. And so I was like, okay, I know what to do. I know I need to be a little more careful here. Am I protecting my energy enough? And yeah, so I make sure I meditate every morning before I see patients. I meditate at the end of the day before I go home. I use, you know, aromatherapy. I do a little work cleansing ritual every day that if my coworkers saw me, they'd be like, really? What's that about? When I I feel energies, I I see things like I need to always be filtering, not filtering in a bad way of like shutting things down, but more kind of acknowledged and okay, this is the time and the place for this. And if this is not of the light, you can go away, (laughs) leave me alone. And just taking a lot of my own advice, the stuff we're talking about, hydration, blood sugar, sleep has been my personal self-care struggle my entire life. And really finally going to a sleep specialist and finding I had sleep apnea was very interesting. I think sometimes you can't tell everything by looking at someone, right? We can meet people that might have things going on. We have no idea. And I think it's just the best we can really do is take care of ourselves the best we can and just really be thoughtful in how we approach people. And you can't always fix everything, but whatever small steps you can take, take those and just know that it's not always going to be perfect. Just show up and do your best. Well, that's so wise. Oh my goodness. You take everything and put it together in such a beautiful way, mind, body, and spirit. The way that you've articulated all of this and translated it is a gift. So thank you so much. Thank you guys for having these conversations. I feel like they're so important and we don't always give the space to talk about it. For supporting that. I feel really lucky to get to do the work. Well, well you're, you're a healer and you're also a teacher. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. It's so nice to connect with you again and have this conversation. It's really a privilege. For more on Jessica and to order her fantastic book, The Little Book of Game Changers, or pre-order The Farewell Tour, visit jessicacordingnutrition.com. And you spell that J-E-S-S-I-C-A. C-O-R-D-I-N-G nutrition.com. Yeah.